but I think change is always beautiful and I hope if I ever I mean I don't I hope that things will go well but I'm also like I know myself even if I'm you know if I make it or when I'll make it I'll do my best you know to do well in the sense of doing well for others because I think I'm happy where I'm at right now but I think I have a moral obligation and as a human being obligation to make the world a better place not only for me you know because I see in life and I see in a lot of things in life right so I don't think I'm in at the point in my life nothing shocks me anymore but I have you know but what about people who can't, doesn't have a voice um, and I don't you know I, and I think that's a cliche things a lot of artists and journalists and documentarians like um, when we say we want to give the, vo- the voiceless a voice um, actually I'm not giving them a voice they're giving me a voice so I think that, that that's something we need to understand but you don't have to stay you know in like Mosul or Tikrit while the war is happening you still have the, you have a way out that's my point we all have a way out and I think that's a privilege that's like a pure privilege and we need to acknowledge that you know in the like we can get out of these things but there is people that don't have that chance and opportunity and but what are we gonna you know how can we make it I uh, look I have a roof over my head I have a bed you know and and I have food I think life is great I don't want more but there's people who don't have that you know you have a context that probably a lot of journalists who maybe grew up here yeah. they have no mm-hmm. they have n- they have nothing to draw on in the same way you do of of having both experiences mm-hmm. so so my story is not that fascinating and 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 I'm being very honest with you um I don't I some people think but it's not because I'm no different from anybody that's going through the same struggle right now, whether they're on here or fleeing Syria, fleeing Afghanistan, fleeing Somalia, fleeing Libya. My story is no different than theirs. I just have an opportunity right now to speak about it. But, and and I'll tell you now my story. So I just wanted to clarify that mine is not any different. Like, is not, um, their struggles are way harder than mine. And um, so, okay, so originally I should start off by telling you my name. It's, it's Wissam al-Badri. And I was born in Nasiriyah, Iraq. Um, and Nasiriyah, Iraq was a little village outside the main town. And um, Well, Nasiriyah is a huge town, but I was born in Sugishiyuch, which is a village. And um, it's a lot of tribal territory. I come from a big family. My uncle, during the 90s and the 80s, was... Um, in a way, commander that fighting against Saddam. Um, oh, he he died fighting against Saddam. That was his thing. It just you know. And um, my father was totally different. He was a pacifist. Never went to fight. Never wanted to go to war. Um, they put him as a police officer. They fired him because he didn't want to arrest people. He was <laughs> doing people favors in the sense of like he hears their story and he's like, you gotta get out of here and literally help people escape. And I I remember the story of this. Six-year-old man 
you know, got cardiac, can't really see. And they accused him of shooting somebody. And my father was like, this is ridiculous. So I think that's how he ended up. Like, no, they actually put him on dog duty to go catch dogs. <laughs> that's how bad they didn't want him in the force. And it was, you know, because it just... And I met his friend years later to watch that story. And his friend was on dog chasing too, but his friend was a diabetic and he used to fall asleep during work. So they had like crazy stories. And, um, but um, my story is like, so I was born in Nasseria, Iraq, in a, a midwife house. I actually didn't know my birthday till, um, I don't know, because we were not recognizing a lot of ways to go, you know, to go register and get a birth certificate. So there is a big fight. Is it March 9th or March 21st? Or was, it, was it 83 or was it 84? You know, and um, my mom had a second grader education. So that, uh, you know, um, very resilient, strong woman. The reason I am the man I am today because of her. I mean, 100 percent. There is no uh, there is no um, debate in that. Um, and so I grew up in Nasiriya, Iraq, um, and Sugishiuk, and I was uh, I was uh, I was bright for my age in the sense of understanding the world. I think because there was so much happening around me and I had to pick up on it quickly. We left Iraq we w because we were poor. A lot of people want to ask me that. No, we were dirt poor in the sense of poor. If we had lunch, there is no breakfast and dinner. And if we had dinner, there is no, like, we have to wait till the next day to catch something. Um, we grew up in a place that's, I would say, it would be a, a studio in San Francisco right now. We didn't have um, a stove. We used to use propane bottles and, um, you know, little stove heads, like not essential like people could live. Um, we used to use um, styrofoam um styrofoam uh, as a refrigerator. You know, we buy ice, put it there, and, you know, and and my mother made it work. So then, grow up in Abu Nasri, I had to learn the map. I had to learn the map of navigating where we lived in front of this. Uh, they, it was like a, a lounge for professors or the teachers. They called it the teacher's lounge. There was no teachers there going. <laughs> but it was like where you can go drink Sambuca right across the street from us. But it was safe times, you know. It wasn't like nothing crazy. And... Um, so we were there living, and um, that was the living condition we were in. We, uh, so we, I had to walk about two, three kilometers every day back and forth to school, and on the way I learned to make friends, you know, um, because when your stomach is growling and when it is water, you need to know people to get a cup of water along the way. And um, so in conversations, and I was intrigued by older people's stories, just because... Not wisdom, but I always wanted to be that person, you know, to, 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 to have the, the same ability, you know, to see through the world and to be calm and collected. I wanted to impress my father, you know, so I was at the, I was in second grade and I was, re I want, I mean, to read him the newspaper. Now, don't get me wrong, I didn't comprehend the words, but I could read. And he didn't pay much, much attention. And, um. So I wanted to be a journalist at that age in a lot of ways. Not a photojournalist, but a journalist. And I didn't get the recognition for it. I was like, eh, whatever. So I just started this, um, playing outside a lot and, you know. 
in my hometown and everybody was living together. I mean, it was this beautiful village that I remember. Um, my friend lived next door. He was an orphan, you know, um, didn't have it. So I was always trying to share what I get with him, you know, and um, I mean, whatever I can get him, you know. We grew up, we have a saying in Iraq, I grew up on bread and tea and basically you make bread, it was dry, you tip it in tea and you eat it because it was dry from the night before or a few days before and so you buy it at a, a very discounted price, you know. <laughs> Sometimes they say even a dog don't want to chew it. Yeah. And, um, but you know, the reality is that, and, and um, so when we used to go visit my mother's family, we used to eat and sleep, you know, and be happy. My mother family were, were, were you know, they, they worked, they, they did okay for themselves. But my mother was a proud woman. She would never ask. I mean, she's like, shit, y'all better go to sleep hungry. We're not begging, we're not asking. Um, but my father's family had money. You know, they were very well off, but they just, mom, they just didn't want to help. You know, th that was like they cut us off. And um, so, you know, and I think that's how I grew up. It's like learning from my mother. It's like, be strong, be resilient. You'll make it, find a way to go through it, you know, and um, learn to deal with other people. And there were stories or, you know, well, my grandfather on my mother's side used to come visit and my mom used to make fake pillows. You know, she'd give him the real pillow and she would make a fake pillow. She would put the groceries or a bag, you know, to make it look like she had one that night. But we actually had one pillow. Um, and there was times when, um, so before the war, so, so we got to this point and got really bad for us. We were really struggling, you know. There was days when my mom, people used to come visit that um, she just used to boil water and put spices in it so they think we have dinner, you know? And um, just, you know, so she doesn't get judged, you know, that she wasn't doing her job. And if you're, at, you know, and my father and all of this did have a job, but he, he used to gamble and drink, so he used the money would never come home. And that was a big issue for us. Um, he was a mechanical engineer too, you know, I mean like he, he was a genius in a lot of ways. But he just didn't have the same values to raise a family. He never wanted a family. So my mother took that responsibility, you know. And at that time, there was five of us, all right? Um, four boys and my sister, Shams, um, which now got her um, degree in um, education. Well, she's working at the University of Nebraska. And but she did teach for America and uh, she basically educational reform. And my little sister Shannon is now um, was born here. That is a mechanic. Uh, no, is a um, civil engineer. And um, so the war broke out in Nasser. Well, Iraq invaded Kuwait, and we knew the consequences of that in the South. But the South was always sympathetic to Kuwait. You know, that it's like because it's that long-term relationship, Basra and Asturia. It was the same families, you know, the same people. So there was an, a Shi'i uprising in 1991. But, um, so, Najaf, Karbala, Nasriya, Basra. I'm figuring a few more up, just one time, poof, you know. Everybody, it was an uprising. But it wasn't really an uprising that... Nobody knew who was in charge and nobody knew who was the leader. They just knew there was Saddam and you just go at it. Now the marshes were right before you enter the marshes, you go through my village, you know, the marsh Arabs. So it was not that far away from us. 
so everybody knew, we knew if anything bad happens you you know they're gonna come through here so Karbalev so Saddam get defeated in Kuwait they come back you know the seven mile stretch of you know of death they come back the 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 Kurds in the north was an uprising um, wasn't successful this one in the south was not successful America under the Bush administration granted him I think it was a 72 hour a fly zone to take control and I think the reason why is they didn't have somebody to replace him at that time. Or we didn't even have the power to replace him. Because the elite Republican Guards unit, when they withdrew from Kuwait, they came out first. So he left the Army Reserve or, or the, you know, so they, he left what he could sacrifice behind. So he needed his reinforcement to come back. And um, so Najaf collapsed. Karbala collapsed, Somawa collapsed, so everybody started coming to my hometown. You know, it was the end of it. We, they all started coming to Nasriya or, or, or Sugshiuch. And they kept the fight. They did They did very well. It was a long stronghold for the um, for people to leave the country, but we didn't know where to where to go because Nasriya wasn't like to, you know, it wasn't like connected to Saudi Arabia. You have to go through Haft al and, and you had to shoot up. And, um, that's when everybody knew Chemical Ali is coming. And the whole um, drive collapsed. What was that that was coming? Chemical Ali. He was, Chemical Ali was, he was, you know, gassing the Kurds. Saddam and and Nasri, he, he, he was from the south. So Saddam sent him, it's like, you're a traitor, go handle your shit, you know? And so the famous photographs of people being buried to their chest um, and being executed. So that was my hometown. He, he buried people 16, 20 up to their chest, filled them up with gasoline, and poof, it was an enjoyment for them. I witnessed a different thing. Uh, we walked by those, but they were, they were just digging. I didn't witness. I witnessed the torture. Um, so... So I was sitting outside of my house and I was banging. Um, there was this tractor in front of my house and I had a big bolt and I was banging on it. Like, you know, I, I needed something to play on. Then I stopped and I heard that, you know, and I did not know um, what an artillery shell from a tank sounds like or from a cannon. And um and my mother's no my father's mother came in a minivan you know strapped up with guns, and um she's like, they're here we gotta go you know, um because we were her grandchildren she was traveling with other women you know wearing the Iraqi traditional clothing you know but they were fighting against Saddam troops I mean they they were literally with their AK-47s fighting, and um how old were you? At that time, I was seven, seven years old, like seven and a half, seven, you know, between, it's debatable. And, um, and so she came around the corner. And this is your grandma. On my father's side. On your father's side. Yes. Comes up in a minivan. With her friends. Her, yeah. How, women. how many women are in this minivan? I think there were six of them all, all like ready to, they were fighting in the front, but they realized they're losing. So they came to save their grandkids. So, oh. so just so then, then we'll go back to witnessing the the torture. So what happened is that Sugishiuch, it was the size of San Francisco. It wasn't big, you know, but the marshes was behind them. So she came and she was like, "We're leaving, we're leaving." 
And um, so she got all her grandkids and my mother. My mother didn't know. She was, a, you know, m my mother at that time was like 24 years old with that many kids, you know, that she didn't know. And Shams, during that time, was like four days old. is a newborn. Um, so, you know, grandmother giving us cover. And um, then the walls were about three feet, four feet high. So we had to duck the whole time. And you see people, I mean, you see, you know, limbs and blood and you know uh, people like people chopped up and all all of that horrendous shit but you know my mother had us like um she said that i asked her years later about it's like oh yeah i was because i had to carry my brother and she had to carry my two brothers and my sister i mean like she like like and she's like yeah i carried you like how a dog would carry all her you know or her babies like i remember and she just ran off and I, you know, and I'm looking back, and my my, my grandmother just f fighting just to give us enough time to get across, you know, to to her part of the city. So, you know, and um, I never saw her after that. And so, yeah. This is the first time I talk about it. So. So yeah. Don't don't feel like you have to. No 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 no. It's cool. I mean, because memories come back, and um, and that's what I w always want to put in my work is how I feel, into the work I do, and so. We got to that point and we had to leave the country. But my grandmother couldn't leave. It's because she wanted to keep fighting. So then you fast forward to the point of us fleeing. So we get to this point of uh, crossing the Iraqi border to Saudi, uh, to Saudi Arabia. Quick question. When you, were, when you were escaping, you said there was a three-foot-high wall. And that was what, yeah, running. we were ducking and running because the because there was a lot of young men were fighting against Saddam, so everybody was fighting. So we tried three times. So this is the first try to leave. So we get there. We 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 left the city. We fled the first time. We get there, and my father. We got to Haftar al-Batan, and my father sent us back. He said, "Oh no, it's not a safe place." And at that age, I was like. Fucking mean it's not a safe place. The war is over there. It's nighttime. You see all the lights. There is a war. He go. He didn't want us, so he sent us back to the war. He put us in a Datsun truck, paid the driver, and he didn't want us. He literally like didn't want to deal with us. So he sent us back, and um, so we were pissed. I mean, we were fucking pissed, and my mom couldn't handle it. So when we got there, that's when Kimak Alina had fully charge of Sugishiuch. So we had to enter the city in a one-way. I mean, Nasriya didn't have that many highways. Sugishiuch, it was one road. So we entered the city back, and it was raining, pouring rain, and they divided us into two groups, left and right. The left was all the men and children. No, all the men from the age of 11, and I believe up to whatever, under left side and women and children on the on the 
right side. So the men knew they had nothing left, but they wanted to keep, you know, some sort of respect because that ran high in Nasiriyah. Sugushiyuch was like the, it's like in a way, it's like the market of um, sheikhs, but not like Gulf sheikh, but the tribal leaders. So they had to keep their dignity, you know. And the women were, you know, mourning and crying and like all kind of sounds they they were making that still echoes in the back of my mind. And um, so they were going to the execution fields, to the interrogations, to then we had to go into our own town and I witnessed something. And that's when I, in a way, I learned at an early age what power and human beings are capable of. And it was this electric pole you know the four ones they like the, the like power they hold the long thing there was this guy literally being crucified by republican guard soldiers and his sister was about a hundred feet begging them and crying and she ran toward them and they shoot at her feet and she runs back because that was her brother and um he could he was being tortured like they were just taunting him and taunting him and she was like, she couldn't do nothing. And my mother couldn't do nothing because she had to worry about her children. And so we went back to the city and we had to leave soon. Did I you know the people? No, no, um, no. He was but they were civilians. They, yeah. they weren't even fighters. No. So, we get back to the city, and I was fucking angry. Like, I hated, I mean, I don't think even what they done to this person, because I was capable, I saw what power is capable of with an AK-47, and you're helpless. I mean, you couldn't even say a word. You couldn't even have a thought at that moment. So we go back to the city. And um, so. So we go back to the city. We go back to our house. It was hit. You know, windows were gone. Um, so we're like, who cares? I mean, it was a cheap ass flat anyway. So, like, eh. so then our neighbors started pointing out. Then the neighbors turned out to be all informants. And they said, well, this uncle, this person, because my uncle was using our house at that time who was fighting against Saddam as a safe stash for their RPGs and guns to fight. If they come to this part of the city, we'll hold them back so people can leave. And um, they literally pointed at our house. And I remember there was guns in the house. And I told my brother Hassam at that time, Shams was about five days old, six days old. I was like, look, they're going to kill us. They're going to rape mom. They Because they, they were doing all kind of shit. I was like, and you know, they, we knew what they were capable of. I was like, they're going to kill Shams. They're going to kill our little brothers. I was like, so we should shoot them, you know? So we opened the window. And we were too young at that time. And, um... I was like, look, there's guns on top right there. I mean, it's like, you know, there was a couple of AKs, and I was like, all I need you to do is hold down the barrel, and I shoot at them. And I was like, because we got to save mom, and we got to save ourselves, and we leave. 
So we did shoot, but we were too little. So it actually flipped me like upside down, you know, like, and I almost shot my little sister, you know, and my mom just whooped my butt so bad because it was all this fear and anger and sadness in all of her. And she's trying to save us. Then I go and do this crazy shit because at seven, you know, seven years old, I don't, I didn't understand the, what I'm doing. I just wanted to know they were bad. All I knew they were bad people. They're bad guys, and they did something wrong. And I witnessed it, and I was angry. And my mother gonna we be hurt. I don't understand the bigger picture of life. And um, and they kicked down the house door. But at that time, when they kicked down the house door, they found her whipping me. So they eased off. They said, "Okay, well, if you you're handling it, you know." And I mean, like with her heart broken, she had to whip me in front of them. You know, so, and so that would happen, and so I had a big mouth. I couldn't, like, just, like, go. Then a few days later, you know, um, I saw one of those guys in the street, and I was like, man, why are you going around hurting people and being a jerk? I was like, they're the same like you, and he kicked me. I still have a busted rib right here, and he kicked me right in my rib. I flew like a rag doll, but I was like, you know, I have to speak up. And I always had a big mouth. I always, if I see something wrong, I have to say something. At this age now, I'm capable of doing something. And I think I learned that I was capable of doing something at the age of like eight and a half when I was in the refugee camp. I was doing something now. And um, so they broke. And it took me a long time. I didn't get no medical treatment. It, just, it took a long time to heal. You know, I think it healed. Well, by the age of... 13, 14, I stopped breathing normal. I always used to have shortness of breath. I always used to have sharp pain. Then the the story goes, then we tried the second time. <laughs> and um, and we, But, you know, the city was surrounded, and um, they were bombing, and, and, uh, and this time it was mud high, you know, clay. Like, Nasriya was a very clay city. Like, it was a very, very clay city. And we walk, and your feet go, you know, and you lose your sandal in the, in the process, you know. You, uh, you lose everything, you know. And um, so we made it out there. But it wasn't successful. They caught us. They sent us back to the city. Then my mom's brothers came through. And so the fucked up part was my mom's brothers were in the Republican Guard. My dad's side was the, on the opposite side. But they had no choice, you know. They, they, it was like they moved, you know, they joined the military and they said, you're joining the Republican Guard. So they came in and they said, listen, they came in in civilian clothes, my uncle and his two friends. Um, and they're like, look, we're given order to clean up the city. And literally their sergeants were sniffing their magazines after they fired to see if you fired, you know. Or th and they said, we, we deserted. You know, I don't know what happened to their sergeant, whatever they did to him. And um, they came and they said, look, we have enough guns. We're going to sell them and we're going to flee. But here's what you have to do. We, we saw the area. There is a checkpoint over a bridge. We're going to swim under it and come from behind. Because at that time, I think the troops, the UN troops and the Iraqi troops were facing each other off. And you guys going to go to this checkpoint and tell them, your husband, 
to my mother, made a mistake, and I'm going to go get him and bring him back home. So she got to the checkpoint, and, um, and she was like, look, my husband left the country, and he, I can't live without the kids. We have to go get him, so I'm going to go get him. And they're like, oh, yeah, we don't care. I mean, they were young soldiers. I would say 18, 19. They're like, and one of them said, no, no, don't come back. He's like, don't come back. We're f like, he's like, we never going to get out of this mis uh, nightmare or misery. Don't come back, okay? Promise us, you know? So a lot of them didn't want to fight. They were just young kids put in a shitty situation or in a, in, a, in a place they couldn't do nothing. So we got to the first refugee camp and there was, it was just enormous, you know? It was like, at the first time it was eight. 8,000 then they grew up to 20,000 and nobody knows who's who they didn't know how to distribute food um, water it was impossible because Saudi Arabia did not sign in to taking refugees so Saudi Arabia is not part of those countries that takes in refugees till today they didn't sign it okay they say it will take so for the first two years we were in the refugee camp we were considered prisoners of war even if you were non-combatant, you were because Saudi Arabia. Like, so we put up in a fence, and um, so the UN was a lot of issues. You know, Iraq was a secular country in a lot of ways. Saudi Arabia was more, you know, and um, religious in a lot of ways. That 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 was, you know. Then you got this issue of Sunnis and Shi'is want to deal with things a certain way. Um, Iraqis were like, fuck that, we just left one oppressor, we're not going to be oppressed again. So all of that, you know, and, and it, it was just like this big um, thing that was happening. And With the refugee camp, like how many people are we talking and what is this? What is it the was 40,000. 40, so what does that look like when you when you when well you kind it, of it when you see for the first yeah, time? It was, it's, it was huge. My first time, I thought it was a big ass playground. <laughs> You know, I go what I want, I play what I want. I didn't understand there was no food, you know, because everybody learned to share. I mean, food were not coming in. Even if they come in, they end up here, but they don't get to the back. Um, and Saudi Arabia, look, don't get me wrong, Saudi Arabia was doing their best to distribute food because the first two years that was coming out of their pocket, like Saudi Arabia was given out of their pocket to deal with this issue um so we get to the first refugee camp and we had to all get um refugee res registration cards is the refugee camp in kuwait saudi arabia kuwait will not take oh. in no refugees because it was still under attack so it was the, saudi arabia the refugee camp was in saudi arabia yeah. so the okay. saudi refu the kuwaiti refugees were in side of saudi arabia staying in hotels and like treated like that and I don't see something wrong with that because it wasn't that much of a no mass of a number as Iraqis were aggressors in Kuwait, attacked Saudi Arabia, you know. So there was a different dynamic to the type of refugees we were. So we get there, the refugee camp, we get our cards, and then the problems start. Then people start segregating. You're from this town, I'm from this town. Then they started going to war with each other. And I don't think it was the people because there was a lot of Iraqi Saddam secret police in the camps, burning, assassinating other political figures, all of that. So people start freaking out that Saddam is here now. And a lot of people thought the United Nations and America, people thought 
they're going to go back home after a month, a year, three years, seven years, 10 years, 18 years. Then they went back home. So you got to imagine this refugee camp is long. Um, children were born there. I mean, a lot of children. My, sis my sister was born there. My, you know, um, so that tells you a lot. Like, then, um, then the first camp, then the Saudi government came in because some agitators, protesters, Saddam, Secret Service, we don't know who told today, has killed some Saudi soldiers. Saudi government retaliated with 50 caliber Humvees shooting through tents. In the refugee camp. In the refugee camp, few hundred people died. Then they moved us to a different camp, little in, burned down. Then we were put in the final camp that was built um, by... It was kind of fucked up because it was built by um, unpaid workers from Pakistan, you know, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. It's like what happened in Dubai and Qatar, you know. So it's the same thing. But we were not aware of it at that time. We didn't know who built it. Nobody knew. And I think a lot of people did not know. So they were built blue. So we had water and electricity. And people thought we made it to the promised land now. You know. We got it. We're not leaving. <laughs> then. Um, How big, I mean, in that situation where it's a refugee camp and there's like nothing there isn't sanitation there isn't in the beginning there? they was in the and the in the in the first one they were not okay. so people had to you know dig holes in the sand handle their business yeah. close it down but when when you just make that 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 jump from yeah. from having you know being in in this initial refugee camp mm -hmm. to now something that has like water and electricity mm -hmm. it must feel like yeah, yeah it felt great we had um, swap coolers, you know, the, because it was hot. I mean, it was so hot. So at this time, my father was with us because there was a, a benefit for him now to have us with him. He can get better housing, you see, because that housing with AC and stuff was given to families. So he, now he gets a swamp cooler and he gets a monthly stipend of like 6,000 Saudi reals, which is huge. He would not make that in 10 years in Iraq. So he needed us now. We were a benefit for him. And, um, and, but my mother, you know, kept arguing, kept fighting, kept, you know, and, but he didn't care. He, he care. He only looked out for himself and himself only. So when we used to get all that money, he used to keep it. He used to not share it with us. So when I was in the refugee camp, I grew up, so when I left Iraq, it was that little Egyptian dress they wear, you know, for boys. I literally grew up into it. When I left Iraq, it was up to my, it was like to my ankle. When I grew, when I left the refugee camp, it was like, it was, it was I grew like seven, eight inches. I was still wearing the same thing. He didn't care. It was for him. He wanted to look good, He, you know, and um and we all know all the boys in the family. No, we were never. We never looked up to him. He wasn't like our figure. It was our mother. We never wanted to be like him. We never as wanted to associate with him. We we don't even talk to him today. We just don't. You know, there is no, there is nothing between us. He we he asks for help. But I think we got that from my mother. We have to help him, but we don't deal with him. And um, so we got to the refugee camp. The second one, 
And it wasn't designed very well. So now you have families and you have prisoners of war in the same camp. And you had um, murderers and molesters and, and hitmen and kidnappers, smugglers living in the same refugee camp. And we had to walk from the family side to the school. But the school is in the middle of all the prisoners of war camp. Oh, so children at the young age had to learn to make packs. So we go in a 20 pack, 30, 27, whatever number, to make sure none of us would get beat up or molested or kidnapped because they, we heard stories. And... Um, so I, at a young age, made my own little crew, and we used to go to school together, come back from school together, and if there was a molester living around or one kid that we just all gang up on him and beat him up, I mean, we had no choice. We had to make sure, you know, and it was like a gang of kids beating you up because it happened, and, you know, we didn't, like, it happened to very of my close friends, and, you know, they, they shared it with me in secret, and we have to do something. Like, we had to send a message. And this guy, his father was a tribal leader. But how can you n navigate through that? We, we knew our parents wouldn't, you know, they have to play the politics card all the times. We didn't, we, fuck, we were not ready for that. We were at that age. We, we witnessed atrocities and war. We're like, we're not about that. We're going to beat him up. And you can imagine so many kids beating you up and being all bloody. And I know it sounds crazy, but at that time, it was like, no, you know, you're molesting kids. You're molesting us, and you're getting away with it. So he, he, they had to leave the part of the camp we were living in to go somewhere else. Then that gave us this little, you know, like, acknowledgement in the camp. And other kids started to join in us. And we were not stealing or beating up people or kidnapping. We formed soccer leagues, you know. Um, we gave kids who are very, very smart escorts to school so they don't get p be picked on by older kids. Because even if you were older, but if there's 20 of us, you're not going to fight with us. Um, so we made, uh, at the end of it, there was a, probably a 200 kids stretch every day before and after school, walking back and forth. You know, sharing gum, sharing laughter, telling stories, you know. I mean, I loved it, you know. It was, and it was on this highway that we felt we have power now. You know, we organized. We had power. Nobody's going to hurt us. Our parents couldn't, like, hurt us anymore in the sense of, like, not protecting us. Um, and boys and girls. Like, girls were in the camp not wearing hijab at that time. I mean, the Saudi school made them wear hijabs. You know, when they enter, but when they leave, we had this whole big old gang that was walking. There was it was like boys and girls all talking and you know laughing, and and nobody knew what a girl boy relationship was back then because we were all young. You know, we were like all telling stories and laughing and you know, um, you know, all went to watch movies and sharing VHS and cassettes and uh, all of those stories. You know, boys holding hands, you know, and girls holding hands and boys girls. We were kids. Nobody understood that. And when adults told us, hey, you know, it's haram, kids are like, man, whatever. You know, they, they didn't give two shits about them. We didn't, because we didn't under, that wasn't the world they created for us. And it was for us to create the world that we wanted. And I was always, I never always wanted to be in the forefront. Even in my work, I'm always like the second inch. 
I was more of a strategist. You know, I don't get involved um, in the sense of I'm always hanging out, but I'm always like part of the council that make the decision um, to make things and kids um, that couldn't, you know, um, Kids that were getting, uh, were mentally, uh, like, um, Hand handicapped. Yeah, they were handicapped or, um, or, um, or like, um, learning, you know, learning, um, issues or we would protect them because older kids would pick on them, but that didn't turn out the way the older kids wanted because they would pick on some guy. I mean, they were just jerks. Like if you had the blood, you know, if you were cross-tie, it was a culture of making fun of people. Or if you were hand yeah, handicapped, they would make fun of you, but not anymore because you were part of this crew now, you know? And so it was, and the kids, you know, um, and... Uh, how old were you guys? Now we were nine, ten years old. You know, we we, we were nine, ten years old, and um, I had a big old afro. My mom said you were one ugly kid because no, it was I. You know, my butt. You know, my body grew up like unproportionate. <laughs> so I had a big old head with big teeth and a big afro, but a little, you know, a little, a little skeleton. <laughs> she said maybe that's why people like listen to you because you were like crazy looking. You know, and uh, with the. Uh, so was that, was the molester kind of the first victory or the first time yeah. that it was like, oh, wow, yeah. by yeah. banding we, yeah, together? Yeah, because after, in, uh, through the refugee camp, it just stopped. Like, How old was that person? I think it was 17, 18. So it was a 17 or 18 year old yeah. molesting the 9 and 10 year old. No, that kid, I think, was 8 years old. Okay. He molested. And because it was, he wasn't like... You know, he 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 had the very fair skin. You know, so that's why I think molesters would attract. You know, they didn't want like they 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 went through. They had this thing about like this boy doll. That's what they called them. You know, and this kid was pretty. I mean, like he was a very beautiful young kid, and all of us, you know, admired him and hanged out with him. He was very smart. Um, his father didn't want to do nothing. That's why he came to us, because there were a minority living in this part of the camp. And we were like, no, man, it's not going to happen like that. And we're like, no, you know, we're all in this together. We're all brother. We all like play. We were all in the same soccer league. So other kids, then other kids start coming to us and respecting us and offering support. And one of them is a good friend of mine right now in um, in in Michigan, Detroit. But he, they were more like gangsters, you know, like gangsters. And the, and he's like, I heard about what you did. And we like you. We're friends now. So if older kids mess with you, you you know you you you're my friend. You tell them I got your back. Then older kids came from other part of the camp too, and I kept my friendship with them at the end. Like they were, you know, I we're brothers still today. That um, few of them passed away because they couldn't change their way when they came to America. You know, um, and they were like, you know, we got your back now. Like you know because. They felt like they're rebelling against the older adults. We felt we were rebelling against the whole system, you know. So the the Iraqi government, the religious government, none of us wanted to read. They were trying to make us read the Quran and learn, and nobody wanted to read that. We were just playing soccer all day. You, you know, that's all we wanted to do. We didn't want to le learn religious stuff. We didn't, like, no. At a young age, we knew the collapse of the shit happened because of all that ideology and because they don't want to. Because, you know. The thing that's amazing is like just this, this microcosm and this small mm -hmm. example of by coming together, you were able to, 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 to stop 
Yep. You know, that the, the molester from the molester kids. is stealing our money, like stealing our food, stealing our and backpacks, stealing your shoes, um, girls being groped. That wasn't happening in our crew. And, and then like, also, though, the, the fact that you guys started doing things like escorting the smartest kids yeah. to school and or, protecting or handicapped kids, the handicapped um, kids, yeah. like that is yeah. that is why. Yeah, we had the pencil sharing network. and we even beat up teachers because i mean you know because teachers used to sit you know you didn't need credential to be a teacher Mm -hmm. so they used to sit little boys and girls in the laps you know and we were like fuck that so we had a a reporting system (laughs) right (laughs) um so the reporting system is if there is okay so we had People who would do something, people who would report, people who would stand on the sideline, but you know, but understand what's happening. And we had people who were direct now in terms of direct action. And few teachers would got beat up by the older kids because we couldn't really physically go one on one or two on one because you know these were like full adults. And we knew we would get beat up by our parents if we go against the teacher. So we had to, I mean, like, you know, I, we have to sit there and plan all of these thoughts out, you know. And we had a committee, you know, of sitting down. And um, and we were um, we, we were there, and there was a teacher case that he used to teach, I think, like, chemistry or something but he was like touching little girls and boys and we reported it to the to the older kids in his class and they beat him up i mean he didn't even get a chance to process he's getting something today (laughs) then then um then our pencil sharing network was that a lot of teachers would you know make you open your hands flat and you know hit you with a stick i mean it was hurt that shit hurt you would cry and what happened is if we don't have a pencil you know that day that we trade you you know your next class book but we give you the pencil then you come back and we trade you know because we do want you to get beat up um but we you know uh, so we had that and um there was don't get me wrong there was amazing teachers who were on our side who were supporting us who loved what we were doing, but they couldn't do nothing about it. Um, you know, PE was five hours a day. I mean, <laughs> playing soccer the whole time. Um, and uh, there was certain incidents, if I'm trying to remember them correctly, with um, the whole um, educational systems and these teachers, you know, getting their power. Um, they, they were not credentials, but it would come back to me that we had to do a lot of things to 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 make them stop um but in reality is we made them stop not hurting us but they they the the the, their way of teaching did not change so at a young age i don't know i was being an activist i didn't understand the word activist i didn't understand the word protest all i understood is that um the the difference that my mother and other people taught me between right and wrong and I tried to incorporate that in my life and my work. Um, so at that camp, um, that what happened is uh, we were, our name got picked in the lottery. And we had to start now getting interviewed for the immigration process. And we had to 
start being being preparing for it what you're gonna say i never know what my parents said but i fi- i finally got a hold of the united nation interview records of my mother's side i only got one page but I, she got the whole thing and she she does not want to tell me her story or offer me the papers to read she doesn't want us to know what happened and this is the first time i open up about my story because i don't think it's unique and reality is not because there is thousands and afghanis and somalis and Libyans and you know um, Afghan uh, Syrians and Kurds and you name it going through the same thing. So mine is one out of a million. It's like it's like a drop of water in the ocean. So it just so that's why I think there is way more struggle than mine. I, I and I think I'm 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 really privileged to have this. Um, life in the sense um, I can sit here and talk about it but it, uh, I understand what it is to live in a refugee camp for four and a half years I understand your name being picked or are you waiting on your papers or are you waiting on your food and feeling obsolete or uh, yeah powerless I would say um, no power whatsoever you have no you have no con- you know the biggest thing is that if we, as our agency and having power over our body, but when you don't have none of that, you're just um, a cattle body. You know, um, what's his name? Um, is it um, Men Search for Meaning? Um, Victor Frankl, you know, when he speaks about that, like when, but you know, but you have few things to fight for. When Eli was there, was talking about night, you know, when people com- gave up complete, ho- you know, complete, complete hope, but there was the ones who still believed. They believed and they believed that story. And this man, you know, a few days before, you know, they got liberated. He died because he gave up on hope. We all had hope. You know, sometimes we're not prepared for adversity. When it happens, sometimes we're caught short. We don't know exactly how to handle it when it comes up. Sometimes we don't know just what to do when adversity takes over. <laughs> and uh, I have advice for all of us. I got it from our pianist, Joe Zabinu, who wrote this tune. And it sounds like what you're supposed to say when you have that kind of problem. It's called mercy, mercy. Mercy. 